Welcome to Mutuality Matters, Gender Theology for the Gospel Empowerment of Men and Women. I'm Blake Dean, here with my co-host and guest of today's episode, the future Dr. Aaron Monetz. Why, thank you, Blake Dean. It is lovely but to be no, here. But no, for real, <laughs> we will be doing this. And we'll explain what we're talking about in just a moment. But first, it's been a minute. So Aaron, we got to find out what you're watching, reading, and or listening to. Okay, so... I'm going to do one of a book that I'm just starting but haven't gotten into just because I'm that excited about it. You love to do this. I do. You do this so often. I am so sorry, listeners, but I'm pretty sure that that this one's going to be worth, well worth the read, all things considered. Um, and it is Jesus and John Wayne um, oh, yeah. by Dumez. And this one has really caused a stir all the way through mm-hmm. 2020. Um, there's still reviews coming out about it and people talking about it, but I've seen it recommended by so many people that I respect Mm -hmm. and I've seen it talked about by so many people that I respect that I just absolutely had, had to get it and start reading it. So I'm a little bit behind the curve, but this is talking about, of course, this feeds my little sociological heart because I really love when people do, um, sort of studies of culture and studies of trends in culture and understanding that as the church, we are not wholly unaffected by sort of the cultural shape that we exist in and how it uh, has an impact on us and how we have an impact on it. Um, and of course, this really comes down to ideas of men and women and patriarchy mm. and caricatures of things like John Wayne and how we understand Jesus. I'm excited. I'm very excited. So that's, that's, what's, that's what's on the docket. I think I additionally haven't read that book, so I'll just probably borrow your copy after you finish Mm -hmm. it. But I think something that I've been really impressed by, because you're right, there's been a stir, but it's been a, for the most part, pretty respectful stir. Like there's just been some reviews that I've seen that have been like, I really like her book and you should read it, except for these points that I would kind of quibble with. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I respect and actually kind of like walk in with a really positive outlook is she responds to this, like on her Twitter feed. Yes. She's responded to some of those critiques and either given them their due or explained maybe the explained some answers to maybe some of the questions that were being asked and i have like mad respect for people that can seriously and earnestly and charitably engage with each other over um things like that i so, agree 100 so what about you like what are you watching reading or listening yeah to? i'm um just re- listening to like just copious amounts of aretha franklin which is not abnormal no, for me no, but i but i do brand. go through I don't listen to the same things all the time. Like I just go through right. peaks and valleys mm-hmm. of um, listening. So it's just a lot of Aretha. No, I haven't watched the miniseries yet. Yes, I know the family doesn't really approve of it, but I probably will still watch it. Yeah. I love Aretha. Yeah. Um, if I could, you didn't ask this question, but I'm going to answer it. If I could recommend any Aretha album to our friends out there, it would be um, Young, Gifted, and Black, which is trivia. Anina Simone song. And so, but it's a whole record and it's really good. And I love Aretha. Vo- best voice of all time. Bar none. Wow. I love it. I've missed this so much. <laughs> yeah. So much. Where, where have, have we, been? we been? Where have we been? <laughs> where have we been? We have been actually doing things. Um, just not recording actual podcasts for this actual feed. And we have good reasons for that. Um, that we can't quite talk about yet. And so we, here's what we can't say. We really do love doing this podcast yes. and we will continue to do it um, in a different form and shape than it has currently existed in, but in one that we are really excited about and in collaboration with 
some other people that we're very excited about. Yes. And so stay tuned. Um, if some logistics are taking longer than um, anyone anticipated, and that is A-OK by us. So we decided we were going to jump back in the feed and just have some conversations um, to engage with you again, but also to engage with each other. And clearly, we need some podcasting yeah, practice. We're a little rusty. We're a little rusty. And so thank you for being here if you're listening. And thank you for going back and listening to other episodes. We've yes. been keeping up with some stats and have been really humbled by that. So we promise you a couple things. We will always be weird and quirky. Yes. Um, two, we will have another season of the podcast coming. Mm -hmm. And three, we think you're going to like some of the ways that it's going to evolve. And four, we will continue to talk to people that are far smarter than us. Yes. But for now, you just get the two yeah, of us. Yeah, for now, it's just us <laughs> talking to each other without so the smart why... people. But you are the smart people today because you just did some really significant work on your um, thesis. So talk about why you're doing a thesis, where you're doing it for. Yes. Um, okay. So a little bit about what I've been up to since 2017. Um, I started, <laughs> a, no, right. Uh, I started a doctoral program at Trinity School for Ministry up in um, Ambridge, Pennsylvania. It's right outside of Pittsburgh. And this is not a PhD program. It is a doctorate of ministry. So the shorthand for that is capital D, capital M, lowercase I, N, usually pronounced D-men which wait so is it yeah that's problematic yeah it makes my students chuckle to no end every time i mention it so i can't call you dr aaron Monas whenever it gets pushed through you can it, it is a doctorate oh, okay. it is just a different kind of doctorate Got it. so for example the difference between the guy who teaches a class on human anatomy is going to be a phd the guy that actually knows anatomy enough to take out your tonsils is an M md so like the, in the difference between like medical teachers and medical professionals, PhD and D-men are very similar. So this is a professional. It really comes, it comes on the heels of, of an MDiv, which, which I have um, from years ago. Um, and for those of us who are practitioners in professional ministry settings, um, and it's tailored to that. It's tailored to, it has to, instead of being theoretical, it has to have practical application. So the whole prompt is you find a problem within your ministry context, and that's what you write on. So we call it a thesis instead of a dissertation, um, but it's similarly a very, very, very big, very large, very long paper that you are writing. Now, in comparison to much, most PhD dissertations, a demon thesis is much shorter um, so even though it is voluminous in its own way, so my, my project is a little over 100 pages, which is about a third of the size mm -hmm. of a lot of uh, PhD um, uh, dissertations. But I will uh, have to defend it, and a lot of the similar similarities of doctoral programs apply in both. It's just a little bit different. Um, so yeah, it, it comes with the title of doctor. But um, it's a lot of people get it confused because they're used to it being a PhD. Yeah. What did you do yours on? What problem did you identify? Well, as our listeners know, I am a chaplain at a small liberal arts college here in Georgia. And um, so for me, I don't necessarily have like a, a parish or a church similar to a lot of my um, colleagues in the program. Uh, my ministry is college students. 
all the time. So I had a number of little problem statements that I came in with through the first day of class. But the one that really rose to the top um, had to do with the topic of intimacy. And that's a word I chose very specifically. Um, I write about this in my paper, but there was a conference I was at and I was listening to a speaker talk about living a celibate life. And she said, um, I can live without sex, but I can't live without intimacy. And that was years ago. And that really got me thinking, like, what do we mean by intimacy is, 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 yes, we can all live without sex. Technically, it's not, you know, an essential to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, that at the very bottom, we have, you know, the basic things and sex isn't there. But is there something essential about intimacy? And if so, what are we talking about? And what do we mean by that? And how do we use that term? And so it just really got my gears going. Um, plus, I'm sitting in front of college students all the time. And they're talking about all kinds of intimate relationships, not just the ones you would imagine, which would be um, dating and, you know, sex and marriage and things like that, but also uh, roommates, friendships, uh, church community, um, transitioning with their families. People in this time of life are making significant transitions with their, with their parents, with their families of origin. Um, so my, my life is, continues to be uh, spent in these conversations with my college students surrounding these things and the same sort of things kept popping up and that is just a frustration and a difficulty um, and sometimes even a distortion of how they view their intimate relationships in light of their faith and so that was that was very much the impetus for the project so it's a theology of intimacy for emerging adult population i love that i I'm very excited to read it, but I'm more excited to just get to talk to you about it. Um, as the resident expert in this conversation, I um, something that you noted when we were kind of prepping for this is that, um, and you just kind of hinted on it, but I want to hit the nail on the head, which is a lot of, in your population, emerging adults mm -hmm. don't have a theology of intimacy. And I think I wonder if you could talk about two things. Why having a theology of intimacy is important. Mm -hmm. Um, or, and, or what's missing from our understanding of the intimacy when we're not thinking about it theologically? Um, yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. Like, because I know you have like all these questions floating in your head. Um, so we'll, I'll try to be concise. Um, so when it comes to thinking about intimacy and why that's distinct, um, and I think it's, I think it uh, gets at pushing for better questions. Um, I see a lot of the resources and things that my students are reading and listening to and going to have to do with very specific aspects. I mean, you got, you just got a volume of knowledge out there. I don't, my, our listeners don't have to, you know, be told this, but there's just a volume of, of uh, information out there from Christian authors about trying to capture a better sexual ethic. Like, we get that there's a problem with sex in the church. We get that this is a historical problem. We get that we're still trying to talk about it. And I've got no beef with that. But I feel like we start with something that isn't always um, a helpful place to start. Um, I think at the end of the day, if we're talking about intimacy before we talk about things like sex, um, then what we get is questions like, why did God create us to connect? Why are we created with this sort of primal instinctual compulsion for intimacy from the womb. Um, and, and what does that prompt us to? And why, how does that, how does, how do we understand that in light of things like original sin? I mean, there's very few things 
that you can say about all humans everywhere for all of time across history and culture and geography. One that the church would say would be things like original sin. Um, the other is a need to connect intimacy. Mm. I think we've taken for granted how massive that is in the human condition and understanding that and asking questions. So I think we start with questions like how do we have a better sexual ethic because we're trying to we're trying to deal with a very relevant and significant problem that we see in front of us. Mm. Um, but I think it is possible and my study covers some of this a little bit, but I think it's possible that that endeavor has been tainted by cultural reactionary um, uh, ways of thinking and writing, um, which, we, which we can get in. I can expound on that more later if you want. But, um, but ultimately, I, I don't know if we're asking the right questions. I don't know if we're starting at the right places. And I think that's why we keep getting some of the same things that are, that are often um, unhelpful. And from what I ran with my students. Or, or anemic. Yes, yes. And, or anemic. And, and ultimately, um, why my students are still struggling when they have all these resources. Um, what is, what's the disconnect? And so I do an ethnographic study where I interview 16 emerging adults and do a focus group that helps um, support my, my hypothesis. Um, and it is pretty significantly supported. I, I was surprised by some of the things that came out of it. But generally speaking, um, I was able to make the case that my students, they love Jesus. They want to apply these things to their lives. They want Jesus to help them. Uh, they want their faith to inform their intimate relationships, but they are struggling and they are frustrated and they are confused and they are, yeah, anemic at best and distorted at worst. Um, they're reaching out and sort of pendling back and forth between licentiousness and legalism, trying to find what will please God, trying to find what will keep their sanity. Um, and uh, I thought, man, there's just got to be a better way to do that. Mm. So, um, so I hope that answers your questions. Yeah. And I think something, even as you were talking at, at the risk of sounding trite and at the risk of saying the same sentence that we've heard for the last year and a half, which is one of the, and I use this word very loosely gifts of COVID mm. is I think the revealing of how we have operated for a long time in a different way where if you are not in a romantic or sexual relationship, if you're not in a marriage, if you're not in any of these things, it is much more difficult, especially as an emerging adult and as an adult, um, to find spaces for intimacy. And that problem has just been exponentialized through isolation and um, a global pandemic. Yeah. So I think like this, your topic, while maybe when you started it felt a little um, niche, is now like the central conversation, um, which I think is awesome. I wonder if you could talk about how do you define intimacy? What What is intimacy? Um, and yeah, I think that would be a helpful starting place even after we kind of played around with it a little bit. But for our listeners, what what is intimacy? Yes. Um, intimacy uh, has a range of applications. And so the way I talk about it in the project is I talk about it not so much in a vacuum, but in, in terms of relationship. So uh, intimacy as itself doesn't really work well in a vacuum. You can't just sort of define it, detaching it from relationships. And so I look at where intimacy, ex intimacy exists in interpersonal relationships, um, highlighting three specific motifs. One is family, the other is friendship, and then sexual marital. And part of the reason why I choose these is A, they tend to be the most prominent 
um, uh, evidence for intimacy in in our lives as as it comes out. I mean, we have relationships with all kinds of people that aren't that are not intimate. They're economic, yeah. they're transactional, but they're not intimate. Um, the where we see intimacy existing, a deeper connection, a deeper knowing, a deeper um, uh, drawing of two persons together uh, tend to show up um, in these different motifs of family friendship and sexual marital. Well, what really is interesting about that is that um, that is also the way that scripture, those are motifs that the scripture uses for defining the, the relationship of the Trinity with humanity. Um, and so that really got, that, that's why I focused on those. I think there's, there's a lot of possibilities that could happen with intimacy. I think you could do a word study on like what it means to know a person, but I choose to sort of define intimacy as it exists in these three motifs and then figure out why intimacy is even a, even a, something that shows up, um, why it's being used, why it's being utilized. Um, so, I mean, essentially intimacy is just a closeness. It's just a connection. It's just something that separates from an economic transactional relationship. It has different, um, has different rules for reciprocity and mutuality and connection. Um, but ultimately you have to define it in relationship or else it just, it just is kind of nebulous. So you talked about how the model between God's self and humanity is described in these three motifs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if you could talk more about that, particularly um, with Christ, because it feels like the incarnation um, is a particular kind of intimacy that then is followed by the presence of the spirit of God among us, which is an even more particular kind of intimacy with us. So I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've got a whole section on this in the project where I uh, focus in on union with Christ. Um, so there are a couple of just things that stand out. One is that um, if you think about the gospel itself, about about God bestowing us with, with, with righteousness, um, salvation, uh, the language is quite transactional. It's pretty economic, you know, uh, we, we have the need, we accept it as a free gift. You know, we're, we're gifted, you know, by, by this higher, greater sovereign being. Um, and then that, that sort of sums it up until you get all this intimacy language where this isn't just a God gifting us salvation. It is a God who says, I, I want to draw close. I, I am holy parent. I am bridegroom. I am friend and and then we see this happen distinctively in the person of Christ in the incarnation in the taking on of flesh in the being with the god with us um this push for closeness and again i think we just take for granted how wild that is how mm-hmm. absolutely crazy that is it's not that it's not that the concept of a deity is foreign to the world but the concept of a personal god a God who yeah. not only has this power and care for mortals, but also this desire to be with this, yeah. this closeness, this intimacy. Like I re- like to me, that is just fascinating in a, in, in a place where I want to start before I start giving my college students advice about dating. Right. Like it's just, it's just this yeah. more profound idea that is woven into the very thing that saves us, the very thing that we cling to, the very thing that we claim um, and, and so, yes, we focus mostly on, on Christ because when it comes to the Trinity, there's only so much we know about the inner life of the Trinity. So much of what we 
can understand about the the triune God is in the person of Christ, um, mm. because Christ shares deity in the Trinity and shares humanity with us. Um, so we kind of share Christ in that way, um, and and because of that, uh, it becomes a, a better sort of safer place to um, to look at at intimacy. And because all of us bear the image of God, because all of us are called to um, salvation in Christ because of Christ's death and resurrection, we are ultimately in a place where we're looking at Christ and understanding Christ um, in an effort to understand our own humanity and our own place in the gospel, both as men and women. Um, and I think that's that's helpful because it's not just how to be a man or how to be a woman, but ultimately Christ is the the central figure that we're all looking to for, for answers to this. So um, what yeah. really is, is interesting to me is not just Christ incarnationally as a, as a human uh, who walks the earth, the God man who walks the earth, but the indwelling, which we, we often think about the Holy spirit, but the scripture also gives a lot of language to Christ in us. You know, we talk about inviting Jesus yeah. into our hearts and Christ in us. And this idea of indwelling is crazy intimate. It's intimacy on intimacy. It's like, <laughs> Who does that? Who inhabits their people? Who actually comes into us? You can't get any closer. You can't. There's there's nothing physical in our human relationships that even comes close to that kind of intimacy. So now we're talking like major levels of intimacy when we're talking about Christ and, and how Christ is, is operating in the world um, through his people, through the church. Um, and so intimacy keeps popping back up. And I find, and I make this claim in my project, that we can't really understand the gospel if we're not thinking about how intimacy informs what God is doing. Um, because it's just in there. It's woven in there. And I can't seem to parse it out. I can't seem to separate it. It is indelibly a part of how we understand God in the world, the, the church, our place in the kingdom, Christ in us. Um, all of these things come back and the intimacy language is just, it's just thick. It's just poured on like a big syrup. It just covers everything. I, and I think this is like the crown jewel of this conversation of going, not only do we understand our humanity through Christ, but we understand our God through Christ, right? Of it's not just, oh, and Christ wanted to come down and be human so that he could show us how to be together, which is true. But more than that, it's also to show who he is. Right. Right. And right. that that intimacy is not an abstract concept that then we get to apply to God, but rather intimacy is present and modeled. And the only reason that we even have access to intimacy is because it's present within God's self. Yeah, right. Exactly. And then in turn in God's relationship to us. And I think that is stupid, beautiful. <laughs> I think that is beautiful. Um and I'm excited. I'm I'm glad that we that we kind of fleshed that out a little bit because that gets to be a thread that we continue to thread even as we go in places that maybe seem a little more unrelated. Mm -hmm. For example, I'd love for you to talk about maybe how do we then, or how do you see that our a that our lack of a theology of intimacy affects our gendered relationships, and b um, if you could talk a little bit about what you think in your own perspective, because of your project, but also because of your lived experience, what Christ-centric and inspired relationships between men and women, maybe that aren't even sexual, um, look like in contrast? 
Yes, absolutely. So um, one of the things that came up in my ethnographic study that was particularly interesting is I asked my, my emerging adults the question, should Christians be better at intimate relationships than non-Christians? And this unloaded a huge box of stuff. I did. I was not even prepared for it. I mean, this was the the sort of quintessential question that we spent so much time on in all the interviews um, that I wasn't even prepared for. And part of that was um, all but one were pretty quick to say yes that they do believe that that Christians should be better, but then they would they would confess that ultimately they don't see that. And they also fail to be able to articulate why Christians should be better. They think they should, like they've got this inkling that maybe Christians should be better at different relationships uh, than, not, than people who don't have Christ, but they couldn't say why. And they also couldn't reconcile in many ways the disparity they see in the fact that they've got several non-Christian friends or non-Christian people in their life who are actually in really healthy, beautiful relationships that, that are modeled so powerfully for them and that a lot of the Christians in their life, it's the opposite. Um, and so this was, this was huge and this really got me thinking about what we are doing when it comes to how we understand intimate relationships. And I think this is where gender theology comes in uh, significantly. And I think there's more opportunity for study on this because I don't get a chance to go in depth of it in, into, uh, in the project. But um, one, a couple of, actually a couple of my students mused on this. They were talking about how it feels like in Christianity when we're talking about how young people should have good relationships. First of all, we're focusing almost exclusively on sex and dating and marriage, like to ad nauseum. Um, but at the same time, we're not talking about how to have healthy relationships in the sense of we're not talking about what um, folks like John Gottman or other social scientists or psychologists are showing us with data upon data about what makes for healthy relationships. So we're not talking about good communication. We're not talking about conflict resolution. We're not talking about mutuality or reciprocity or mutual respect or any of these things that not only we know are important and fundamental for healthy relationships, but are also informed from scripture. Scripture has a lot to say about conflict resolution. My husband and I, we yeah. do premarital counseling. We're constantly pulling from scripture as ways to guide healthy practices in relationships, but we're not talking about that. We're definitely not talking about that in youth group. This is what my kids are telling me. Um, so you just have to go see my sources cited for this, but um, this is not what we're talking about, but we are talking about a lot of other stuff and that other stuff is not only muddying the water and making it hard for my students to really know how to have healthy relationships, but it's anything but the actual foundations of healthy relationships. And if you started looking through the words that pop out, it's, it's a lot of purity culture and it's a lot of narratives that are shaped around gender roles um, controlled by a patriarchal narrative. So we're talking, instead of talking about reciprocity, we're talking about roles. Instead of talking about communication, we're talking about submission. Instead of talking about uh, mutual respect, we're talking about modesty. And so there's all these other things that we're talking about instead of these important building blocks. And I, I had a couple students, one in particular, who I quote in my um, in my project where she says, I get around just other guy friends, Christian friends, and I freeze up. 
because I'm so terrified I'm going to do something wrong. Side hug, fist bump, how close do I stand? Is my outfit okay? Like it's, it's just going through this paralyzing list of things. Um, and that's what's happening. And, and so that then creates a reaction where those relationships, those friendships are just fraught with anxieties and pressures um, that, that, that these, these students are imposing upon themselves from this narrative they've inherited. And ultimately, we're not having healthy relationships. What we're having is a lot of anxiety and craziness until you get to the point where, where students just break and then you get a lot of licentiousness and then you get a lot of like, I'm just throwing yeah. the baby out with the bathwater and doing whatever because this standard is just too difficult to meet because it's a moving goalpost all the time. And that, that to me screams the, the sort of um, the echoes of yeah. gender, um, gender theology and gender roles that we've heard coming, coming out of the church. Yeah, and I think something that I, I will never let go of in these conversations is that in, in their worst forms, um, the, those conversations are not modeled after the humble, self-giving love of Christ, right? Um, and that's not, I'm not saying that's true for every conversation that maybe I disagree with, but I am saying that um, if that's not primary, if that's even secondary, and we can get into this in, um, like, in egalitarianism, sometimes we make the, the self-giving, humble love of Christ secondary. And if we make it secondary, mm. we make other things primary. And I think that's the problem behind the problem, right? Yeah. <laughs> Is that the model of Christ and particularly how he loved, how he served, and how he was present um, with other people yeah. of various kinds um, should be first and foremost, right? Mm -hmm. We don't, we don't b think gender equality is, um, is the, the gospel ideal simply because we want it to be. Yeah. Um, we, we, we want it to be because we see it in scripture, yeah. right? And we, we long for it because we, um, we see scripture talking about, um, Christ in that way. Yeah. And this, um, this informs everything about our singleness, right? So this is this, I totally. right. So listeners, um, go back season one, we've got some stuff on singleness or go back to our interview with Christina Hitchcock about this because, because uh, yeah, like what you were, what you were sort of kind of leading on here, Blake, this, this whole idea that, um, understanding, you putting Christ central to this discussion of intimate relationships is going to inform so much more than just the stuff we tend to obsess with. And it allows us to expand the conversation where it is valuable for more people because we don't all need sex, but we do all need intimacy. And if that's yeah. not in a sexual relationship, then if we're still only just talking about sex then we yeah. miss opportunities for true beautiful intimate relationships yeah. that are mirrored by a very single non-married Christ. And we similarly, and I, I actually don't think this is often malintended, mm. but I think it has a, I think it has an, an opposite effect, mm -hmm. which is often in our overemphases, our fearful overemphases of um, some aspects of a sexual ethic, which I am a complete proponent of Christians having a sexual ethic right, and of us right. talking about it. Yeah. But I think sometimes when we approach those conversations with fear mm. and when we approach them, which is so easy to do. And when we approach them 
um, as a list of unexplained rules. Yeah. Um, rather than the why behind it. And that why is being found in Christ. Um, what we end up doing is we actually sexualize our relationships even more. Yeah. Yeah. Because then it becomes, am I doing the right thing? Am I making this sexual? Am I thinking about this sexually? Am I, is, is that hug going to come across as wrong? Instead of, um, that we need each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and that we are, we are created as a family together. And that does not mean that boundaries are not important. We see this in the news every other day. Boundaries are incredibly important. Yeah. Um, yeah. But what it does mean is, um, is that I think we also have to be aware, and I think you're hinting at this, and we're kind of getting off topic, but it's that sometimes in our fearful efforts to control one another, to mm-hmm. make sure we're doing the right thing, yeah, um, we actually end up continually over-sexualizing one another yeah. in a world that is already over-sexualized. We already are swimming in that water. Yeah. Um, and so adding more is maybe not our best way forward. I wonder, you mentioned purity culture, and I wonder mm-hmm. if you could talk about this a little bit, um, and this might be a little um, off topic from your thesis, but even since we last had a conversation about purity culture in season one, mm-hmm. I see it everywhere right. like i see everyone talking about purity culture and something that is so interesting to me is no one is defining it the same mm-hmm. or diagnosing the problem the same yeah so i wonder in light of your study in light of your studies um talk to me a little bit about what is purity culture and why is it um even for those of us that uphold a sexual ethic why is it still a perversion of um healthy intimacy Yes. Oh gosh. So this is, this is a loaded one. I'll see, let's see what I can do to, to distill it down. Um, so I don't go hard into purity culture in my project because, um, because I, I have to focus on other things, um, for, Mm -hmm. for the project itself, but I do have a section on it so that my readers will be able to understand some of the stuff that pops up in the ethnographic study, which purity culture does pop up. Um, I also explain hookup culture, which is another yeah. thing that pops up in the ethnographic they study. They are connected. They are connected. Yes. And, and purity culture isn't just one thing. Um, yeah. The purity culture that I experienced in the Joshua Harris, I kiss dating goodbye, true love waits, um, mega, you know, DCLA uh, era is different from some of the purity culture that exists now. And now we have a different kind of purity culture. So I, I, this is not in my project, but I know this because I've been reading books that my students are reading um, related to these topics. And I'm hearing new messages that I'm getting over and over and over again. And I recommend a study. I recommend in my project a continued study of the actual resources themselves because yeah. I just didn't have the scope to do that for this. But I think this is the next step is really looking at these resources because now we're saying, oh, yeah, this isn't purity culture. This is just us talking about sex in a better way and and t- telling you about how to to do it better. But here's the thing. It follows the same sort of behavior modification standards as purity culture. So it still talks a lot about abstinence and modesty. And then, and, and again, please understand, I'm not, I'm not condemning these things. I think modesty is definitely a virtue. I think the way we've talked about it has um, gone off the rails, but it's certainly something that's mentioned in scripture. And abstinence and all of these things are not are not bad things in and of themselves. I'm really talking we about actually them. affirm them, right? Exactly. I'm really talking about <laughs> we them. Actually, in the context, say yes to them. Yeah, yeah, in the context of how they've been uh, sort of manipulated by sort of a, a yeah. cultural standard. And so, so what we're seeing is we're seeing um, 
these these things being talked about. And so even in a modern context, we're still talking about them, but with sex positivity. That seems to be the new thing. It's like, oh, that old purity culture was like sex is bad and ugly. We're like sex is good and God loves it. And isn't that great? So now that we've established that, let's just say the same thing that we were saying, you know, 10 years ago. And so like basically what I see yeah. is that sex positivity is the new cultural band-aid for purity culture. But it's like, no, this is this is just still the same problem. And it's still and the, I was not expecting to talk about the scriptural sexual <laughs> ethic on this episode. Um, and it's still just as anemic because the problem is not even the like, not all of the, the, the things that we talk about. The problem is we don't know the why. We don't know the why. And my students and it's not are, grounded, are feeling it. And it's not grounded in Christ. Exactly. I have these conversations all the time. All the time. Where it's like, well, why is abstinence this ideal? Right. And right. I've, I've read the books that try to answer that question, but again, they're not talking about a theology of intimacy. And so yeah. it's, it still comes back to us just sort of patching proof texts to behavior modification. And, and, and the thing is, our students are not buying it. They're just yeah. not buying yeah. it. It's not, it's, we're still not asking the right questions and not to disparage any of the authors that these books are coming from, because I know some of them are God fearing, awesome, wonderful, smart, wise people. But this is why I did this project. I just really don't think we've been asking the right questions. And so we're getting a lot of the same answers. So purity culture is not one thing, um, but it is a reaction. And so now we have hookup culture and hookup culture in many ways is a reaction to purity culture. It's not solely a reaction, but it definitely has roots in reacting to purity culture. Purity culture, as it turns out, is a reaction to the sexual revolution, which is a reaction to fundamentalism, which is a reaction to the enlightenment, which is a reaction to Victorianism and so on and so forth, which is part of why I wanted to just pull back all the curtains, scrape away the historical mess and say, at the end of the day, from scripture, from systematic theology, which two of my chapters go deep dive into this. What is intimacy? What is it for? Why is God infuse it into this gospel? And what are the implications of that? So in my project, I don't talk about dating. I don't talk about singleness. I don't talk about any of these things. These things are conversations that are informed by this sort of foundational discussion of intimacy. And I'm hoping that those projects will emerge off of this, but ultimately I'm saying just pluck this out and let's start where God starts. So instead of um, eisegeting, which is sort of a big word for our listeners, sort of eisegeting is sort of a reverse engineering and saying, how do we make our emerging adult population uh, have better intimate relationships? Let's, let's superimpose our ideas onto scripture and pull texts that then form a narrative that we've already created. The idea is to exegete and to say, where is this stuff? Where does it exist? So one thing that I'm really proud of in this project that I just thank God for is when I started it, I didn't know. When I said, I believe scripture has a theology of intimacy, I didn't know what it was and I didn't know where it was. The best way to begin. It was, and, and it was a gamble, right? It was a gamble. I just thought there has to be something besides behavior modification, because I've only ever seen the gospel create beautiful and perfect foundations for an idea of human flourishing to our good and God's glory, giving us really good and powerful reasons for why we exist as kingdom people in this universe. And somehow these things were detached. They were untethered from each other. 
And I wanted to say, where is intimacy in the gospel and how does the gospel inform this without knowing? <laughs> Just believing it would, but without knowing. And I'm so glad for this project. I'm so glad that I got the opportunity to do it. I'm so glad for my supervisors, my professors, my advisors, my colleagues who helped me with this project along the way. Because I had to start with just a gamble and then go to the scripture and let that inform the conversation. But I figured that was the only way to dismantle it from these dominoes, these historical dominoes of reactions to reactions to reactions. They have shaped the narrative. This is why I believe all of these books say the same things, because they are reacting to a narrative that was shaped by somebody else, reacting to a narrative shaped by somebody else, reacting and so on and so forth. Um, And as a result, we're continuing a conversation that is, again, so incredibly detached and untethered from just Christ and as the hope of glory. Mm. And what does that mean for intimate relationships? Yeah. And that's, that's what I, so I'm very excited for this. Yeah, me too. All right. I have a couple, um, we'll call them rapid fire, but (laughs) we won't get to them that quickly. I'll do my Um, best. If you... So obviously it's still in the process of being, you're going to have to defend it, et cetera, et cetera. But so for people that cannot read your thesis, what would you say? We've talked about the problem. What would you suggest is one thing, not the only thing, but one thing um, that you hope um, because of, or maybe that because of this project, you now hope for Christocentric intimate relationships in America. Yes. Um, I am hopeful. I am hopeful for not only the continuation of this study and the branches that come off of this for the more niche topics that um, ministers like myself are really looking for and needing, but also a cohort of people who are willing to posture their, um, their resources, their ministry, their writings, their content off of these different questions. And, and I, I want for people who are in my position working with emerging adults to, to start with um, a possibility that maybe some of the most popular resources that are out there are not necessarily the right ones and that they themselves need to get back to what is the gospel and how do we start there? What does that mean? Yes. What does it mean? How do we articulate that to an emerging adult population? Um, because here's the thing. This is, all, this is all good and well that we're going back to scripture, that we're studying these things, that we're looking at the ontology of intimacy, the origins um, of these things. But at the end of the day, I've still got a kid sitting in front of me whose parents are still treating him like he's 10 years old, but he's 22. And he's trying to figure out a way to keep that healthy relationship with them while also hopefully creating a new uh, adult relationship with his parents yeah. and, and is unsure how his faith applies to that particular journey and why there seem to be almost no resource. I won't say there, won't, there aren't any, but, but very, very few resources about that topic. So at the end of the day, this still has to work. This still has to fit. This still has to have boots on um, in order for it to matter in the ministry context that I'm serving, that my mm. friends are serving in. And so, um, so while we have, to, we have to start at the right places and ask the right questions, we better get to some applicable stuff pretty quickly because yeah. our students are there already and we're behind yeah. and we need to, we need to catch up. 
What would you say is um, off the top of your head, your uh, favorite or the one, a resource you could recommend that you used for your study? So it doesn't have to be about anything in particular, but you read this book and went, man, if I could put this book into other people's hands, it would be worth their time. Mm. You know, there, <laughs> I've definitely got my fan favorites. Um, I'm going to list a, a couple. Now, these are mostly niche. Again, it's a bit of a broken record by Christina Hitchcock's uh, The Significance of Singleness. She does a lot of this work in that topic, um, which is which is where I just found some some really compelling stuff. Um, and and this is going to sound um, so pandering because he is actually my advisor for this thesis, <laughs> but Wes Hill's Spiritual Friendship. Um, right. And again, we're talking niche topics again, but, um, yeah, they're, they are ones that start with different ideas and different questions. And I, I, I think those are, those are safe and good and valuable resources, but they are niche, but we learn from each other. Right. And so I also think that's something that even listening to you talk about, I've been thinking about in this whole conversation is maybe there's not um, a plethora of great resources on particular topics. But I find like, even though spiritual friendship by Wes Hill is not my particular experience right. or maybe isn't like, maybe doesn't map perfectly yeah. onto the life that I currently have. Mm -hmm. I learned a lot about what it means to be a friend, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a brother, what it means to be a husband, all of these roles just by listening to the wisdom that he has by the spirit of God. Right. So also like, I love that. So yeah. I don't know and why I said that. The third one that I would toss out there, it's a little bit more of a brain buzzer if you just really want to go like deep into it. But someone who did, uh, who, who wrote about something very similar to what I've written about, but instead of using the term intimacy, they really focus on the, uh, the concept of desire, which is like mm, easily yeah. parallel is Sarah Coakley's, um, new asceticism. <laughs> right. And again, you, you woman is got brains on brains on brains. So Those you are gotta, dense you sentences. gotta like really like, like have, have a friend, have a friend to hold your have hand. Have a cup of coffee. Yes. Yeah. For this one. I love Sarah Coakley. But, but I, these are all, um, these are all sources I use in my project and, and her, right. Her, um, her theology of desire, I found so incredibly helpful to even give me a few starting points for thinking about something like yeah. intimacy. Yeah. All right. Final question. Okay. What's your favorite candy bar? Oh, Three Musketeers. Three Musketeers. Oh, don't give me that look, Blake Dean. This even is, like, this is an like audio weird, medium, I, and I, I like I Three Musketeers. judging me. I feel the judgment coming through. I like microphone. Three Musketeers. It's fine. But like as your favorite candy bar with that weird like mesh situation. And, I what love is that. that? I love that. I bite off all the stuff around it, and then I just eat the insides. You're an animal. Um, <laughs> now, I will say. What even is it though? Reese's. I, I love Reese's cups, but I don't put them in the same category as candy bars. Bars candy are like bar? a certain shape. Okay. I have on my shelf right now, Trader Joe's dark chocolate peanut butter cup. That and they're insane. Fantastic. They're so good. Yes. Any combination of like chocolate and peanut butter, particularly dark chocolate, because I think that yes. helps offset some of the like heightened sweetness of the peanut butter. Don't give me white chocolate and peanut butter. 
that's just yeah, that's madness. An it's just crazy. Yeah. But dark chocolate and peanut butter, absolutely. But yeah, I've always loved Three Musketeers, just as a kid. Just always did. It never, never got off that train. Just loved it. Okay. Well, we started strong and then landed weak. Um, no, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> I loved having this conversation with you. I am excited to read your thesis, and I'm glad that other people get to glean some things from your thesis. Thank you for going down rabbit trails with me. And um, I think it's important to say, too, that while we spent a lot of time in this episode um, doing our own reaction of sorts Mm -hmm. and our own diagnosis of um, conversations about romantic, intimate and sexual relationships, particularly, um, I think the greatest contribution of this conversation is a Christ in the center, b expanding the definition of intimacy outside of just sex. So I um appreciate your thoughtfulness on that well thank you and thank you for asking such great questions it was so so fun to get to talk about this yeah and thank you for joining us today if you enjoy this podcast we would love to hear from you we're on facebook we're on instagram we're on twitter you can leave us a rating of or review which you should do we would love that we appreciate you connecting us with other listeners and we love your feedback i'm blake dean with my co-host aaron monez where mutuality matters Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.